Welcome to the Nonprofit Voice Tech Series, a special edition of the Nonprofit Voice Podcast, hosted by Mark Becker, founding partner of Cafex's Partners and editorial advisory board member of Nonprofit Pro. In each episode of this monthly installment, Mark will have conversations with prominent nonprofit organizations and industry thought leaders to learn more about different technology offerings in the marketplace. Join us and together we will learn more about these innovative digital tools and how to navigate the rapidly evolving technology landscape. Hi everyone, welcome back. Mark Becker here again. Uh, looking forward to today's conversation. Today we have Allison Fine and Beth Cantor on the line. Um, they recently published a book, um, not their first one, and uh, I, I've listened to it recently. I, I kind of cheated. I, I got the audio book, um, but I was multitasking over the weekend and, and listened to it. A lot of great stuff in here. So very excited to chat with both of you today. Uh, welcome. Thank you for having us, Mark. Yeah, Beth. great to be here. Anything you'd like to share about your, your backgrounds? Definitely want to ask um, Allison, you know, why did you write the book? But anything before we dive into there? Um, well, we can introduce ourselves. Beth, you want to go? Sure. Uh, so I'm Beth Cantor, and I am an author and facilitator and trainer. And I've worked at the intersection of tech and nonprofit uh, mission-driven work for the last uh, 35 years or so. And um, I'm and I work in the areas of digital transformation and workplace well-being. So it's always been about leadership and workplace culture and its relationship with tech. And I'm Allison Fine, and like Beth, I've spent my entire career in the social sector. I had a first career in program evaluation, and for the last 15, 16, 17 years, working at the intersection of tech and social good. So to answer your question, Mark, why this book, why now? It is because we're at a critical inflection point with what we call smart tech, AI, and related technologies that are doing rote tasks for and instead of people. And what makes it really important is that we feel really strongly that smart tech can be the elixir to the always on 24 seven toxic work cultures that make work a game of whack-a-mole and help to lead to the great resignation. Instead, when organizations use smart tech well, which is what we're gonna talk about with you, uh, the hope is that we can uh, pivot from being transactional, always on the hamster reel, to having people do what people should do, which is to build strong relationships and to solve problems and um, to tell stories. That's great. No, that's terrific. And yeah, Beth, throughout the book, you all are talking about smart tech and the dividend of time, right? Can you explain um, what you see as smart tech and, and what it does? Well, Sure. So um, in the book, uh, we we call smart, smart tech, um, we use an umbrella term uh, to uh, uh, reply to advanced digital technologies that are uh, making decisions like what to watch on TV and automating tasks like answering questions or filling out forms. So specifically, the types of tech that are there are artificial intelligence and its subsets and cousin, cousins such as machine learning, natural language processing, smart forms, chatbots, robots and computer vision, but the book really isn't about the tech itself because we don't see adopting smart tech as a technology 
technical problem. It's not like grabbing software off the shelf or sending it down the hall to the IT department. It's really a leadership challenge um, to stay human centered and really put um, people before the machines and finding that sweet spot between um, what the machines can do best, which is analyze lots of data, do a lot of that grunt work and rote work that exhausts us, and uh, what the humans do best, uh, judgment, empathy, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, just staying human, relationship building. Yeah. It was definitely very clear throughout the book. And I love how you kept on, you know, coming back to that point. It's not about replacing people, you know, it's about freeing people up to do what people do and leave the computers and the algorithms and the programming to do all the things that people don't want to do anyways. Right. And, and, you know, it definitely frees them up to do more things, but also takes that, that repetitive, boring, uh, rote uh, piece of uh, the element out of everything. Right. So that was really great. Yeah, we want to caution, though, um, you know, not to use the technology to just do more of the same. And, and this is where it gets to that point where, you know, it is a leadership issue. It's a workplace culture issue. And this is a chance for us to really, you know, change and not continuing doing the same old, same old, you know, forcing people to work these long hours. OK, so we're more efficient at doing more work. That's not the idea. Is, is that we have this free time, this dividend of time that we talk about throughout the book that, well, we could have life work balance, maybe. We could have a life outside of work. Maybe we could switch to the four-day work week and, and other things. You know, uh, fundraisers, you know, in our sector after uh, people who are working on the front line, like social workers and people in the medical profession, they're the next ones that burn out and leave. Um, so, so let's stop burning people out <laughs> and driving them out of the sector. You know, and, um, let's turn it around. And smart tech is part of that uh, strategy. Yeah, one of my favorite examples uh, in the book is about the, the leaky bucket and talking about mm -hmm. not just, again, to your point, the scattershot of everything, right? Not just hitting everybody with the same messages, but really refining that and making it um, targeted and segmenting and using uh, smart tech to help you do that, right? Um, what, what are some of, some of your favorite examples um, from yeah. the book? So let me lean into that leaky bucket uh, issue, Mark, because it is one of our favorite topics. Uh, of, we don't talk nearly enough in the sector about the fact that 75% of donors won't make it from year one to year two, right? That is a dreadful mm -hmm. retention rate and it is typical of the sector. Uh, because we have this voracious need to keep asking people for money because we know the bucket is leaking. <laughs> so you got to keep filling it up as fast as you can. That is the type of transactional work that we really want organizations to um, pivot away from. Uh, so for instance, the um, Rainforest um, Action Network uh, used smart tech to increase the uh, amount of monthly donors by over 800%, right? And they did this by um, using smart tech and understanding these donors, these new donors in a really deeply way using thousands of data points from, you know, not just the organization, but on the web, right? There's a lot that we can know about people to customize the stories and the communications directly for them. So we can customize fundraising, customize communications for individuals at scale, 
not just for the million dollar giver, but for the $25 giver as well, mm -hmm. right? And it had this explosive uh, improvement for uh, that organization. So that's the kind of ways that we really want folks to begin to think about how can we hit the hearts of our people, volunteers, board members, donors, in much more meaningful ways for them. And when we can uh, increase that retention rate, we can take the pressure off of the development teams to be racing at a thousand miles an hour every single day. I love it, that's great. Beth, how about you? Uh, well, I'm going to get, go in a different direction in terms of examples because um, there's a whole array of them. And I'm going to pick one up that's uh, using smart tech for program delivery. And I love this example because it just shows um, the steps that we need to take to remain human centered. And the story begins with the Trevor Project, uh, which provides crisis counseling to LGBTQ plus people. So uh, they had a problem. Okay, they had um, more uh, demand for their services from teens in distress uh, than they had trained counselors to support them. Okay, so that's a, you know, that that's a life, uh, life and death problem, right? Um, so th they created a bot called Riley, and um, they didn't replace the counselors with Riley because that's not being human centered. And also bear in mind that the particular counseling that's delivered, it's, you know, it, it it's very, um, they have to be well trained, uh, use the right language that, you know, it re really requires human empathy skills. And, um, and, uh, and these are people who are volunteers uh, that are counselors. And so the counselors can only be trained by staff, right? And, and they were short on staff and, and also staff work during um, quote, normal business hours. And, and volunteers were doing this on um, evenings and weekends. Um, so they really didn't have the staffing capacity um, to be able to deliver enough trainings to scale enough of the volunteer counselors to deliver this life-saving um, um, intervention to teens in crisis. So enter Riley, the chatbot was created to solve this particular problem by um, being trained on a, some data set that was actual conversations uh, that the counselors were having stripped of all you know, identifiable information to retain privacy. And, um, and this enabled them to uh, scale um, and add on more counselors, but it also shifted um, staff's jobs. It didn't replace them. So instead of like delivering a lot of training, they were more monitoring the delivery of the training. <laughs> I mean, the delivery of the counseling. Um, so all in all, this is a great um, example because it shows how they were human-centered and, um, and, and, uh, and how they I took a pledge to do no harm to the end user. I like it, I like it. Um, and it even had some examples in, uh, throughout the book, a couple of examples where the th things were tested by an organization and they actually didn't have the results that they, they were hoping for and wanted, uh, but they were able to pivot and kind of redirect from there. So while you know that wasn't a success, they still learned from from their their their, their projects, their testing, and uh, moved on from there. So yeah, I think that's that's terrific. Yeah, and that's right. I love that example too. I think you're referring to the Black Cat Adoption Week, but right. <laughs> that uh, they were, and you can imagine with one of these self-learning bots that can learn by interacting. If they put that out there um, to the general public, what kinds of things could go wrong with the words "black" and "for cat? sure"? 
Yeah. Right. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. It's just asking for trouble for sure. Yeah. The world doesn't need a whole lot. The trolls out there don't need a whole lot of help, right? You don't want no, to give them a tool. They don't need to... any help at all. <laughs> right. The people uh, trolls, but the, the bot trolls uh, as right. well, right? <laughs> and there's press, precedent for that too. A couple of years. I mean, there's we hear these stories pop up occasionally. You would think people have learned this lesson, but um, there was one bot developed by a large tech company called Tay. And it was intended to, it was for Twitter and it was intended to interact with young people to figure out how to talk to young people. But the, the, the trolls got a hold of it. And within 24 hours, it became a racist, misogynist, evil bot and they had to take it down. Jeez. Hmm, I think that kind of leads into my next question then for you, Allison, is, is um, you know, what is about the challenges? What about, you know, uh, when it comes to adopting smart tech and ethical uh, responsibility and, and just the overall side effects, you know, this, that's one example, but any thoughts yeah. around that? Lots of thoughts. Hmm. Um, <laughs> right. So there's a whole big bucket of concern of making sure that you, you are using the technology to um, improve lives and not to do any harm. So that's, that's one whole area. Um, Another area that has gotten um, significant amounts of attention over the last couple of years is the likelihood that the system will have biases built right into it. Either uh, people who are writing the code build their own um, you know, um, biases, maybe it's uh, racism or gender you know, biases, completely unintentionally at, at times into the code itself, because we are talking about taking over human decision-making or um, the data sets that they're using to train the systems to look for patterns have bias built into them. And you will see this in places like say housing where historically black and brown people have been left out of uh, mortgage systems. So if you are creating an algorithm to pre-screen people for mortgages and you've used an historic database to train the system of who's okay and who's not okay, you are almost by definition going to continue to leave out black and brown people. Um, and then you have privacy issues as well. How are people using um, the data? Are they making sure people really are uh, anonymous? Are they protecting users' um, data as well? All of these things are going to happen within these systems, Mark. Tech, no tech is ever going to be perfect. It is incumbent upon um, organizational leadership to understand the opportunities where bias and, and uh, other discriminatory factors are going to weigh into systems and to press vendors on how did they test these systems, what assumptions did they put into it, um, and what can they tell us about this? Because nobody should be buying black boxes, and those are too often being now sold by commercial vendors. That's a great point. And I, I loved you mentioning that in the book. And yeah, because there's so often a black box involved. What happens over there? I don't know. You know, well, should or, we or, accept you know, that? Well, it's, proprietary. it's our proprietary uh, code, right? right? We're not asking to look at the code. We're not coders, right? We are asking, what assumptions did you make in building the system and how have you tested it for bias? Those are the kinds of questions we have in the book that we need organizations to be asking. So Beth, with all this in mind, what, how does a nonprofit prepare to start using you know, tech well? What, what kind of steps can they take? 
Sure. Um, we devote an entire chapter <laughs> to this topic, and and there's some, you know, there's a lot of uh, useful checklists and kinds of questions. But the steps are ready, set, go, and the readiness is really about um, again, it's a leadership and a culture issue. So it's having those conversations that uh, pinpoint the pain points uh, from the end user's point of view. Okay, so where is grunt work <laughs> exhausting people in the organization, or you know, uh, where where is it that we're we're missing out on uh, uh, cultivating um, potentially lapsed donors, or you know, what is what is that pain point? What problem are we trying to solve? And and it's not just the you know organizational staff sitting around the table and you know thinking up what the problem is. They need to go out and talk to their you know, their clients, their program users, or their donors, or even other staff, whoever they're designing for, or to, you know, to, to test out, is this, is this the real problem? Because often those initial ideas around the problem to solve, they change and evolve. Um, if we think back to the Trevor project and Riley, you know, maybe the initial thing, oh, we can replace counselors, but no, 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 the pa real pain point is right. scaling the training. Um, so, um, and you don't want to use um, this technology for everything. It's, you know, it's like hot sauce. <laughs> Um, not catch up, you want to use a little bit in the right place before dumping it everywhere, um, or you'll probably ruin your meal. The next thing is set, and Allison already uh, talked about the importance of, um, you know, really understanding your, your technical partners and your tool vendors, and, how, and what assumptions were kind of built into the algorithms, what were the data sets, and there's a lot of questions that we have in the book, a checklist that you can ask, and but even more importantly than that, I think the, the most important thing is for leaders and for organizations to reflect, does this um, technology partner, do, do their values align with our values? All right. It's a values-based decision, right? It's not a technical decision, and that's a leadership discussion. And then um, it's important to set up an ethical advisory board. I think Allison maybe touched on this a bit. And these are people who uh, have an understanding of the tech, but also the ethical issues that, you know, and it's a pair of set of outside eyes that have an ethics lens. And what's cool about this is that there's an opportunity for collaboration with nonprofits. You know, not every nonprofit needs to set up their own ethical advisory board. Maybe it's a group of food banks that do it and share it. And in that, there's the do no harm pledge <laughs> again. And Allison's already mentioned some of the challenges or the, the, the bad results. We don't want anything bad to happen. So there's a conversation about what are the potential things that could happen? What are the risks and how can we mitigate those? Um, at that point, you're ready to come up with a, a proof of concept, um, a small pilot for you to learn. And it's really about iterating and inching your way uh, towards that scale. And once you are at scale, um, the technology is not like a pot roast where you kind of set it and forget it. <laughs> uh, it does need, you know, some tending to, like um, like a puppy needs tending to. <laughs> um, so it's ready, set, go. There's a lot more detail in our book, um, you know, checklists and types of questions to ask and the step by steps. Yeah, a lot of good nuggets in there, and uh, yeah, definitely a lot of detail and. Um, more actionable items in, in the book. So well done. Um, so Allison, where do you, where do you see this all leading? What are the trends? I mean, I know, you know, the, obviously the goal is to get to that sweet spot of 
you know, smart tech and people, right? And maximizing both both sides. So what are the trends you're seeing or where do you see this leading you know, as, yeah. as we move forward? So right this second, Mark, we're at what we call the heel of the hockey stick of like uh, smart tech um, uh, availability, right? It's becoming much more available commercially and inexpensive. So everyday people and organizations can use it. It is coming into every single area and department of organizations from comms to marketing, to development, to services, to back office. So every person in an organization is going to be touched by smart tech and be making decisions about smart tech, either in its everyday use or in the strategic you know, understanding of the organization. We need a lot more practice in how to identify these pain points as Beth mentioned, and get the right product in use. We need a lot more reflection on what is happening with our people when systems and processes are automated. And finally, finally, we need a lot more intentional um, purpose in moving to being deeply relational, which is our, ultimately our greatest hope. I like it. Beth, any final thoughts around that? Sure, and I'll, I'll put my uh, workplace well-being cap on for this one. And Mark, you know, I'm sure you've seen this in the work you do. I mean, we're at this point where there, we're, we have a nonprofit workforce crisis brewing. People, mm -hmm. you know, we have an increase of demand for services and we have people burning out um, and, and, and leaving because of these toxic uh, environments, uh, unbelievable workflows and just not even time to take you know and even thought of having a life outside of your work and i think that while smart, smart tech is not and is not magic fairy dust <laughs> it's not we're not going to sprinkle on that and not, you know solve this huge crisis but it's part of the solution but it relies it rests at the feet of leaders of nonprofits uh for them to lean into this in a very human-centered reflective and knowledgeable way I like it. Well, that seems like a great place to leave it. Thank you so much, uh, Allison and Beth, for joining us today. And I highly recommend anybody out there um, that's interested in this topic and in, working in this industry at all, definitely check out the book, um, Smart Nonprofit, available on Amazon, right? I know that's where I found it. Um, uh, so definitely check it out. And thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode of The Nonprofit Voice. You can listen to more episodes of The Nonprofit Voice at nonprofitpro.com slash podcast slash the hyphen nonprofit hyphen voice. And remember, for your convenience, you can stream any and all episodes of The Nonprofit Voice on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify.